0: Please open your bibles to Revelation chapter 4. Ooh, Revelation. Revelation chapter 4. Last week, last week if you were here or if you happened to listen online, you know we opened the door to eschatology or end times. And judging from your response after the service and throughout this past week in a word, wow. Many of you discovered what I did, too, what I do, too, in preparing to share on end times. Once you crack that door open, it is really hard to close it again, isn't it? All sorts of questions just come pushing through that door. And I'm not surprised that the topic of end times sparks that interest, but I am impressed and blessed And not just a little relieved at the nature of your questions and comments. Many of which are still languishing in my inbox, I know. I will get back to you as soon as I can, I promise. Uh, But praise God. I I bless God for you and for your interest and enthusiasm and desire to dig deeper into Scripture. And what God has to say as we continue on toward that day when each and every one of us in here will see Jesus coming again. Now this week and next, I'd like to talk about an important purpose of end times scripture. It'll be a little different take than what normally we're used to. It's one that's often overlooked, this purpose of end times scripture when we study apocalyptic literature like Revelation. The purpose is often overlooked in our rush And fascination with end times charts and sequence of end times events and interpretation of prophecy and other interesting questions. And while those things are also important, they are not, in my opinion, God's primary focus in revealing end times events to us. Our fascination with the extraordinary and the supernatural nature of end times, can become an end to itself. We just like being fascinated. We can get caught up, raptured. Ha <laughs> ha. Try it again. We can get caught up, raptured. I won't go for three because I'll strike out swinging. So We can get caught up in the fascination of it all. And in our debates over this and that detail, we might miss a primary reason, a primary purpose for God sharing about end times in the Bible. In short, a primary reason why God shares about end times is to encourage believers to persevere. And in revealing the extraordinary and powerful and supernatural nature of end times events, God seeks to encourage us, encourage believers to persevere by showing us that He and He alone is in control. He's got a handle on this thing. He's noticed the injustice and pain and suffering and persecution and sin in the world. And He's got it covered. In fact, more than covered. Craig Blomberg of Denver Seminary, just down the road, puts it this way when talking about the book of Revelation in particular. A key purpose, Dr. Blomberg says, of Revelation is to reassure suffering Christians that God is still in control, that all this suffering and tribulation is part of His plan. Indeed, that it foreshadows even greater tribulation yet to come upon the world, but that in the end, Jesus wins. Another group of commentators note, through it all, the book of Revelation has been a source of strength for millions of believers as an assurance that the Almighty reigns. And and I don't know. I feel like sometimes in my study or reflection, in our study or reflection on end-time Scripture, when I get into a debate with someone about it, We sort of sail past and miss God's intent to encourage us with it. We miss the encouragement. Instead, we get so caught up in heated arguments over details, which never feels very encouraging. We may even feel discouraged because, maybe because, in part, our very human need to know every last detail. That part of us gets so very frustrated. We don't, most of us, I think, including me, we, we don't like it much when we don't know all there is to know. And apocalyptic literature in particular, like the book of Revelation, by its very intentional, mysterious nature, it can frustrate rather than encourage us because it feels all so confusing. And then the frustration is only magnified because someone told us along the way that we're supposed to be able to know all there is to know of end times events. Well, says who I'd like to know? I'm not so sure about that. I I don't think God tells us about end times so we'll know all there is to know about the details. He doesn't give us a recipe. Instead, He tells us what He does about end times to encourage us to persevere, to show us He's in control, regardless of how the little details all work out. And it seems to me maybe we sometimes miss being encouraged encouraged if we demand more or a different purpose from those texts. And so for this week and next, my goal, I'll share it with you right up front, my goal is to try to share with you the encouragement that God has there for us, even if, in fact, especially when we just can't seem to understand what in the world is going on, not only in Revelation, but literally in the world, given all the pain and struggle and heartache and injustice and war and calamity and death and chaos going on in the world, and in indeed our own very lives from day to day, God encourages us when we often just can't seem to understand what in the world is going on. And God knows that we struggle when feeling encouraged. We struggle with feeling encouraged in the face of sin. And so our gracious, loving God gives us a peek, at least, at end times to encourage us. Now... A few foundational observations on interpreting apocalyptic writings like the book of Revelation before us. In fact, one polar star guiding principle of interpreting Revelation. If you remember one thing this morning in your continued study of Revelation, please remember this. The book of Revelation, like all apocalyptic literature of its kind, must be carefully interpreted... In light of its historical background, here's why. Like all apocalyptic literature, the book of Revelation is characterized by four features in particular. First, extreme, and I mean extreme symbolism, I mean, outlandish, even grotesque creatures, and cosmology from apocalyptic literature and you know culturally most of us at least are not very comfortable with that i howard marshall notes this about us he says although this aspect symbolism of the text is described as imagery or symbolism These terms strictly belong to the extra-textual world, and it's more correctly called metaphor. Part of the reason, Marshall writes, why Revelation has been difficult to read is that in the development of Western thought, we have not been very good at understanding metaphor. This has been part of a wider intellectual movement which, since the Enlightenment, has consistently prioritized literal language over the metaphorical. Boy, do I agree with that. He's on to something there. See, as we approach any writing that uses extreme symbolism, as we come to it, part of the challenge is there's no way of predicting in advance how literal or figurative an apocalyptic is going to be. And so we need to be very careful students of the time in which the apocalyptic work is written, because that author is drawing on symbolism and metaphor from that time. Let me try and illustrate. Imagine, if you will, what certain 21st century American or English idioms or symbols might sound like to someone living 2,000 years from now. Okay? Okay. What might someone 2,000 years from now think about the following idioms? To- <clears throat> Excuse me. <laughs> tongue in cheek. Now, you all know what that means, but if you're 2,000 years from now reading tongue in cheek, you have to ask is that an idiom? Is the author well, that I'm reading this really talking about having a tongue in a cheek? Spill the beans. You know, is the author talking? Literally, there's going to be beans that are spilled, or does it stand for something? Go ahead, Tom. Let them roll. I smell a rat. (laughs) To get in someone's hair. Cat got your tongue? Horse around. Drive someone up a wall. You're a wet blanket. I had to pay through the nose. Can you imagine 2,000 years from now? You know, if you wipe out, you bite the dust. Okay, you get the point. One problem they might have 2,000 years from now is deciding whether it's literal or figurative, whether it's really an idiom, and even if they believe, okay, we think it's an idiom and not intended to be literal, they still might not have a clue what that idiom means because the meaning might have gotten lost in history. That's a lot like trying to interpret Revelation written 2,000 years ago. How about this list of American symbols 2,000 years from now? Especially if, like Rome, for the sake of illustration only, America is but in an ancient memory. The bald eagle. You know about the bald eagle. You know what it represents. It engenders some feeling or understanding in you. Because that's from our time. Two thousand years from now, they read about a bald eagle, and they, you know, does the does the eagle need Rogaine? What, What does the eagle stand for? The Liberty Bell. Wall Street. Apple pie. Mickey Mouse. One early American flag that had a coiled snake on it that said, don't tread on me. 2,000 years from now, they might think, whoa, that ancient culture worshiped snakes. (laughs) Vegas says something to all of us. Turkey is a symbol, right, of Thanksgiving. If you hear about the song Taps being played, you know that that's associated with death. 2,000 years from, uh, from now, they might not. Or if someone would put in poetic form in a writing today, Amber Waves of Grain. You would know. and might start humming the song. But 2,000 years from now, if that's Amber Waves of Grain, wow, there's going to be like red grain. You get the idea. And that's a lot like trying to interpret Revelation written 2,000 years ago. And so the book of Revelation must be carefully interpreted in light of its historical background. Second, a second characteristic of apocalyptic literature that calls for historical context to help interpret it is that apocalyptic literature intentionally, purposefully describes past, present, and future events in world history leading up to a decisive intervention of God to right the injustice in society. The literature, by, it na- by its nature, intentionally uses history. So we better know the history if we're to interpret best what the author means. Third, apocalyptic literature is always written in times of real crisis to reassure people that the evil will not prevail. And so we better learn about the crisis that, the crisis that prompted the writing. A valuable aid in interpreting what the author means. Last. And this one, this one's something quite unique to the book of Revelation. It's not at all common of other apocalyptic writings. See, the book of Revelation is written as a letter. From John to the churches of Asia Minor. It's a letter. And this wrinkle only intensifies the need to know historical context. Because as a letter addressed to real people in real time and place, it must be rooted in current events, both known to the author and each of the churches at the end of the first century, with action required of each of them. The churches can't act on what they can't understand. In the words of two very respected scholars, because Revelation is a letter, the text can't mean what they couldn't have understood. And so for all these reasons, extreme symbolism, real history, real crisis, a letter written to real people, the book of Revelation especially must be carefully interpreted in light of its historical background. Each potential symbol must be carefully interpreted in light of its historical background. Now, in the case of the book of Revelation written by John, this historical background includes... Number one, the Old Testament. We need to know the Old Testament. We need to know it well to best interpret Revelation. I. Howard Marshall notes, the text of Revelation is soaked in the Old Testament. It is hardly possible to read a single verse without finding some echo or allusion to the Old Testament. And so if if we find ourselves baffled by Revelation, it may be because we're ignorant or not as experienced with the Old Testament, especially its apocalyptic works, including books like Daniel, second half of Daniel, Ezekiel, and parts of Zechariah especially. Some Greek editions of the New Testament include a list, of Old Testament citations and allusions in Revelation. In that listing, there are 676 distinct allusions to Old Testament verses in the book of Revelation. 676. And the whole book of Revelation has just 405 verses. The text of Revelation is indeed soaked in the Old Testament. So we need to know the Old Testament, and we need to know it well to best interpret Revelation. Second, the historical background of Revelation includes intertestamental apocalyptic literature, stuff written in between the Old and the New Testament, a period of some 400 years. The largest and most well-known of these, and certainly well-known to John, The author of Revelation is 1 Enoch. 1 Enoch contains many of the same symbols John uses in the book of Revelation. And so to study a study of 1 Enoch and other Jewish apocalyptic work can help shed light on similar imagery that John uses in Revelation. Last, as I've already mentioned, current events in the first century especially perhaps in and known to the Asia Minor cities in which John and to which John writes. Such current events are important to best interpret the book of Revelation. It's a huge part of the stuff that John uses in symbolic fashion. So, we need to know our historical context in interpreting this book, especially including the Old Testament, intertestamental literature, and first century current events. Okay, let's put what we learned into practice. But let me step back again and refocus a bit. Remember, God gives us Revelation and other apocalyptic scriptures to encourage us to persevere. This type of scripture especially emphasizes His power and His sovereignty and His control. The universe has not somehow gotten away from God. The devil, hasn't, you know, the devil doesn't on some days get the better of Him and send Him scrambling. In other words, God is not at all like Lucy Ricardo or Ethel Mertz. Let's take a look at All right, girls, listen carefully. This is the wrapping department. Yes, ma'am. Now, the candy will pass by on this conveyor belt and continue into the next room where the girls will pack it. Now, your job is to take each piece of candy and wrap it in one of these papers and then put it back on the belt. You understand? Yes, sir. Yes, yes ma'am. Let her roll! <laughs> Wait here. Somebody's asleep at the switch. <laughs> what are you doing up here? I thought you were downstairs boxing chocolates. Oh, they kicked me out of there fast. Why? I kept pinching them to see what kind they were. This <laughs> is <laughs> The fourth department I'd been in. Oh, I didn't do so well either. No. All right, girls. Now, this is your last chance. If one piece of candy gets past you and into the packing room unwrapped... You're fired. Yes, ma'am. Let her Well, this is easier. Yeah, we can handle this, Okay. feel like that It's like you kids that uh, especially that's like your nightmare summer job right there. Not just kid, I feel like that a lot with all that goes on in life. But you know who never feels like that? God. God. Sometimes I think it's tempting to feel like maybe it's getting away from him. But it never is. Now, let me try and give you a very different picture of sovereignty and control. Your Bibles are hopefully still open to Revelation chapter 4. But before we read, before we read it, consider the following. Given our lesson on historical context this morning. First, whenever he would travel around the empire, the Emperor Caesar would always be accompanied by various officials and advisors. When he got to a city, he would sit on a portable, movable throne surrounded by these officials. Caesar Domitian changed the number of these officials from 12 to 24. Second, white was the common color of the normal ritual apparel in Greek religious practice. Third, it was customary to sing and to shout words of praise and adoration to Caesar, including lofty titles like Savior, King of Kings, Son of God, and Holy One to the Emperor as he approached the city. Four, some Caesars, like Domitian, demanded that citizens worship them as gods. Five, a feature of Greek worship would be for people to wear gold crowns or sometimes wreaths and to cast them down before their gods. With that in mind, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word from Revelation 4. John writes, After this I looked, And there standing before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven and someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. A rainbow Resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. And also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under the wings. And day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who sits on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns down before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Then I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. And I wept and I wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. And then one of the elders said to me, Don't weep! See, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a Lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of Him who sat on the throne. And when He had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. And then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they sang. Boy, the throne room of God is a noisy place. In a loud voice, they sang. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing. Singing. To Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Wow! You can take a seat. How does that make you feel? For a second, please, for just one second, try to put aside all of those Western-thinking Greek questions that kept cropping. What, he has seven horns on his head? What's that all about? Try to put aside your need to know every detail. Just try to put... How did it make you feel? That's the purpose of apocalyptic literature! First and foremost, in my strong opinion. Why do you think John writes in that way? Instead of giving a detailed, itemized list, he could have described it a much more for Western ears, couldn't he? No, he gives it to us with imagery. Why? Maybe it's supposed to appeal to how we feel, our hearts. Do you feel encouraged by that picture? Like, boy, I do. And do you notice what John did? He describes that throne room of God and what goes on there in terms that the people of the first entry can understand. He borrows Caesar's symbols. Steals them, really. And he points them to God. As if to say, Caesar, you got to be kidding me. It's God who's in control. He's in control no matter if pain, persecution, and circumstances make it seem otherwise. God, not Caesar, is in control. Jesus, not Caesar. God, not the powers of this world. So be encouraged and persevere because in the end, Christ Jesus wins and in Him we win too. And man, (laughs) it is so easy It is so easy for me, maybe for you too, to feel helpless in the face of sin. And it's so tempting to think that, you know, maybe God forgot about me. Or maybe this thing, maybe God is something less than all-powerful. Which is something that famous book, Why Good Things Happen to Bad, Bad People, concluded. It's wrong. This thing hasn't gotten out of control. This is the Almighty we're talking about. It's tempting, maybe, to wonder and doubt and worry about it, to ask questions like, wow, is God in this over his head? Kind of feels like it. If he ever had control, has he somehow lost it? Is God simply overwhelmed by the power of evil? Okay, you just heard John's description of the throne room of heaven. Let me ask you, do you think the one sitting on that throne with a rainbow wrapped around him perhaps to remind him of the covenant he made to Moses, never to destroy the world again? Do you think that the one sitting on that throne with a rainbow wrapped around it is overwhelmed by anything? Whatever difficulty or trouble or pain is going on, past, present, or future in the universe, the world, or in each of our lives day by day, it is not because God isn't up to the task. He's not weak. He's not in it over his head. He isn't losing control. He's easily keeping up with that candy on the conveyor belt with no trouble at all. It's all part of his plan. A plan that will end perfectly with a bow tied on it where we get to be with him forever and ever. So be encouraged and persevere. Be encouraged to persevere because the one who sits on that throne is in control. Don't be fooled. What only seems to be powerful as we struggle in a fallen world. Keep your eyes focused on the one who sits on that throne, the one in total control, and be encouraged because he loves you. However the final nitpicky details play out in the end, however they do, they will play out exactly according to the will of God. And maybe that's enough. Shouldn't it be to encourage us? Whether the rapture happens before or after the Great Tribulation, whether the millennium is before, after, or during when Jesus comes again, whether it's literally a thousand years or that's just a big number suggesting a long full time, whoever the Antichrist is, whatever, God is in control of it all. And so be encouraged. Hang in there. You can do it. So help you God. And He will. Next week, we'll use our tool of historical context even more. I get to share with you one of my favorite takes ever on a portion of Revelation. I hope you'll be there. I know I will, so please come. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for giving us encouragement through end-time scriptures and texts. Thank you for the magnificent, supernatural, powerful pictures that you pour through human authors so we can get a glimpse and a taste just how sovereign, just how mighty, just how amazingly great you are so that can grow and kindle and flame with us encouragement to persevere. Father, forgive us if we take end-time Scripture and use them as an excuse or a reason or a tool to divide. Help us, Father, in the face of it all, of all of our healthy debate under Scripture, help us, Father, to remember in the face of it all, You give it to us with an intent to encourage and to bind us together with cords of love that can't be broken, just like a husband and wife. We love you. Thank you for the privilege it is to spend time in your Word. And in Jesus' name, all God's people said, Amen. Amen.